Father, we thank you for this day of rest and worship, this day when we can take the burdens of the week and set them at your feet, and where we can just commune with you. Bless us in this day and in this time, in Christ's name, amen. So over the last several weeks, we've been uh, going through chapter 29 of the confession, which is the Lord's Supper. And uh, we've noticed both what the supper is and what the supper is not. Uh, And the confession spends a fair amount of time disagreeing with both Roman Catholicism and Lutheranism. Uh, So if you'll notice uh, in section 7, about halfway through that paragraph, the body and blood of Christ being then not corporally or carnally in, with, or under the bread and wine. And so that in, with, and under is whose position? The Lutherans. That was Martin Luther's, uh, when, when the, the words of institution say, this is my body, Luther just literally hammered his fist on the table and kept saying, this is my body. He's taking the words literally. He acknowledges that the Roman Catholic transubstantiation position is not right. The bread doesn't actually turn into the body of Christ. But he does say, this is my body, means the body of Christ is in, with, around, and under uh, the bread. And so our confession says, no. That's not accurate. Uh, they all, they both remain bread and wine. The elements remain what they are. But then it goes on to say there at the end of section seven, but, uh, really, but spiritually present to the faith of believers in that ordinance as the elements themselves are to their outward senses. So here's, the big question. Uh, so I was going to write what. Actually, a better word is how. So the question is, how is Christ present in the supper? Are we simply remembering? Is it merely a memorial? Or is there something more than that? And pretty much everybody, it's interesting, uh, Ms. Vividelli sent me an article a couple of weeks ago on the debate over the elements of the Lord's Supper, and the writer of the article makes the claim that Zwingli did not hold a Zwinglian position, <laughs> which is going to completely upend my entire candidates and credentials uh, examinations. Uh, that Zwingli, according to this article, actually held a position that the confession holds, and that is that Christ is present in the table, but he's present spiritually. 
Now, how many of, uh, I'm guessing in this room, this is not very controversial, but how many of you might think, well, you're just making up words to say he's present spiritually, he's not present. You're, you're spiritualizing it. He's present spiritually means he's not present. And, and that's the argument against this position. Right. This is this is more than simply Christ is present with us at all times. There's something about this that is special. Uh, it is, you know, it's a sacrament. It's one of the two sacraments. Uh, and there is a real yet spiritual presence of Christ. Now, Lutherans and Roman Catholics push back against that and say... If it's spiritually present, then it's not present. Uh, you're 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 just you're you're bringing in this category of spiritual presence in order to deny the plain teaching of the of the word. And the response to that, and uh, so this was actually when I was examined for ordination. Uh, one of the questions that I was asked from the floor was, can you tell us what the extra-Calvinisticum is? And I just so happened to know. Uh, it's one of those random trivial pursuit things. Uh, the extra-Calvinisticum uh, is Calvin's response to Luther. When Luther said of Calvin, you're denying the faith. And, and this was so important to Luther that when Zwingli was killed on the battlefield, Luther said that Zwingli was a heretic and a blasphemer. And it was simply over the issue of the Lord's Supper. Uh, he and Zwingli agreed on everything else except the Lord's Supper. And, and for Luther, that was, if you deviated at all, uh, you were immediately outside the faith. Uh, and, and that's sad. He did. He was way off. <laughs> well, and that, that's, I mean, Luther had some clay feet. Luther, uh, I mean, one of the things, Luther was strongly anti-Semitic. Uh, that, he, he is well known to have been a very emotional man. Uh, at one point, supposedly, he thought he saw the devil in his study tempting him, and so he picked up his ink pot and he threw it against the wall. Uh, in many ways, we would he, we would say Luther lacked self-control, and he was very uh, strong, emotional person. At the same time, God uses crooked sticks, <laughs> and. Well, uh, and I'm sure Zwingli had his own clay feet too. I, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, so at any rate, any rate, yeah. I mean, all these guys have clay feet. Uh, we, 
There is only one that we... <laughs> Even Galvin. <laughs> uh, uh, so at any rate, to circle back, the question is, how is Christ present? And Lutherans and Roman Catholics say, listen, if you're saying Christ is really yet spiritually present, then he's not present at all. You're just making up stuff. And Calvin's response to Luther is, tell me how a man is born again. Are you really born again? Spiritually, (laughs) you clearly are not physically born again. You spiritually are born again. So is that real or did we just make it up? It's a very real, (laughs) it's a very real thing. So would you say that there's an element of mystery both in our being born again, although there's more scripture um, that clearly point to our being spiritually born again, but also mystery in the presence of Christ and how um, grace is communicated to us through that? Absolutely, 100% agree. There is great mystery, not just in the how is a man born again. Uh, you know, at the same time, Jesus rebukes Nicodemus and says, you should know this. <laughs> uh, but certainly in the presence, in the presence of the Lord's Supper. And I think that's kind of what all theology is to a degree. It's like you've got this pure light that is God and God's truth. And we're attracted like moths to that light. And we want to get as close to it as we can while recognizing we're never, even in eternity with perfect understanding, we're never going to fully comprehend the majesty, the mystery of God. Uh, he is, he is outside, uh, of our feeble comprehension. Uh, again, just, uh, you know, Pull out my clock and make sure I'm not blowing time. But um, again, kind of a a sneak preview of the sermon today. Uh, The consecration of Aaron. A bull holds about 10 gallons of blood. Every day for seven days. They are to sacrifice a bull and pour all the blood out around the altar. Seventy gallons of blood in a week. Every morning and every evening, they are to sacrifice a lamb. That seventy gallons of blood in one week is to extend throughout Israel's history. Flavius, I don't want to give too much away from the sermon because I'm preaching my sermon right now. Uh, Flavius is a Jewish historian that writes around 100 AD and he refers to one of the Passovers, just one. He said there are two, there were 265,000 animals in one Passover. Think of the millions upon millions of gallons of blood 
that were shed over the 600-year period of Israel's existence. Millions of gallons of blood. All just a pale shadow. Pale comparison to one drop of Jesus Christ's blood. All of that was pointing forward to the work of Jesus Christ and that massive amount of blood wasn't enough. There's, there's, there's something that is profoundly mysterious about the work of the gospel. And, and in the Lord's Supper, I, I, I think for us to take away that foundational element of mystery uh, and recognize we can come as close as we can. And, and in coming as close as we can, we can say what it's not. And we need to say what it is. And that's what the confession has been trying to do. It's not the body and blood of Christ. It's not a holy, you know, the bread becomes holy, the wine becomes holy. It's, it's not these things. It is these things. This is what a good definition, I, I, was, I was taught uh, in undergrad school. If you're going to define a word, you have to define it so clearly that not only it identifies the meaning of the word, but it excludes everything else uh, that is not that word. So a good definition is, here's what the word means, and it's so clear that everything else the word doesn't mean is included in it. And that's what we're trying to do in theology. Here's what God's word says, and we're trying to define it so clearly that we can also say, and not all this other stuff uh, that, that people think God's Word says. That's right. And, and that's, the, that's the feeding on him spiritually. There is a feeding upon Christ that, that comes in this. Amen. Amen. Life is in the blood. And without the shedding of it, there is no remission of sin. And that was the difficulty. (laughs) Well, not just for the reformers, but I mean, obviously, it's an issue today. 
Yes. Yeah. Okay. So let me, let's, uh, look at that last section because this is where, uh, kind of we live. This, this is where you and I interact with the Lord's Supper, uh, in section eight. Although ignorant and wicked men receive the outward elements in this sacrifice, yet they receive not the thing signified thereby but by their unworthing, unworthy coming thereunto are guilty of the body and blood of the Lord to their own damnation. Now, ignorant and wicked men, two categories. And these are not the same thing. Let's see. I before E except after C. All right. Uh, So I know this passage is familiar because I read it every Sunday. Uh, But could someone read for me 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verses 27 to 31. 1 Corinthians 11, 27 to 31. So you hear in that passage, there's a clear warning. If you partake in an unworthy manner, you will be guilty of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. So the unworthy partaking. Now our confession says, and and they're taking this largely from 1 Corinthians 11, that there are two categories of people who partake in an unworthy manner. One is the ignorant, and the other is the wicked. Now, I assume we all are on the same page as to the wicked should not be partaking of this. People who are given over to some sin, refusing to let that sin go, uh, this sin is a dominating feature in their life, let me be explicit, If you have a pornography habit, and if you are unwilling to mortify your addiction to pornography or your use of that illicit, sinful activity as a way of pleasure, if you are unwilling to crucify that sin, then you are wicked. You are unworthy. 
the table is a place where you say, I am transferring my death for his life. And I am going, and, and this is something in a, in a different context. I was speaking to somebody in counseling, uh, the other day. And I was saying, you know, the, the, the double imputation of Christ's righteousness. Uh, if you've been around Reformed theology for any length of time, you might know that terminology. The double imputation of Christ's righteousness is that there are two things that happen. One is my sin is transferred to Christ, but also Christ's righteousness is transferred to me. And so that's the double imputation. Christ receives my sin. I receive Christ's righteousness. Now that's a beautiful doctrine, right? Dude, that's a terrifying doctrine. If you think about it, that is a terrifying doctrine. Because what that means is that I am to live Christ's righteousness. That's to be my life, is Christ's righteousness. Now think of all the times that you've smarted off to your parents, had a bad attitude, smarted off or fought with your siblings, yelled at your kids, been unjust towards your children in any way, been harsh towards your spouse, been unloving towards all of those things that you probably have done over the past six days. (laughs) The double imputation of Christ's righteousness means my life over the past six days should have mirrored. Jesus Christ's, and it did not, and that's why I need grace. That's what the table is about, but it is a commitment. So the wicked person is is not in this picture at all. The wicked does not have the double imputation of Christ's righteousness, so he's not living out the life of Christ in any way at all. But now the ignorant. The ignorant, who would, there, there are two categories that come immediately to mind that we would call ignorance. Can you name one or both of them? What two categories of people, now ignorant in our language or in our modern day is a put down. It's not intended as a put down. I'm ignorant of many things. I'm completely ignorant of how to do heart surgery. If, if you have a heart attack and need a double bypass, do not come and talk to me. You are in trouble. <laughs> I am ignorant. <laughs> so, at least one group, I would think of the ignorant category are, let's say, the common Roman Catholic who have taught all their life about this is what this means and this is what it is. Um, and they're not really So, yes, that, uh, those, those who are under false doctrine, who have been taught false doctrine and don't know better, uh, they are certainly in the ignorant category. But still accountable, but still accountable for it, because they've got the Word of God in front of them. Um, I would say also, not just the people who are under false doctrine, but 
Right? There we go. That's the one I was looking for. <laughs> and the mentally disabled. So I had two in mind. We've ended up with four. But I think in particular, the issue of children and the mentally disabled. Uh, to the degree that a believer is ignorant of their need to confess their sin, to, to live out the righteousness of Christ, yes, that would be. That's right. Yeah. So I put, I put that one up there. You're right. Uh, so I put that under kind of peer pressure. Somebody just comes in, everybody else is doing it, I might as well do it. I guess, you know, I don't want to stand out, I don't want to look weird, I'll do it too. Uh, and that's one of the reasons that we give the verbal fencing. I, I try to be clear that if this is not where you are, don't come. If this is where you are, then come. Uh, so, uh, but, but particularly the children, uh, and our, our catechism goes on to, to ask the question. It's a larger catechism. I can't remember the exact number. Uh, I think it's 136, 137, something like that. Uh, but our catechism asks the question, what is the difference between the recipients of baptism and the Lord's Supper? And the answer is that the Lord's Supper belongs to those who are of years... Years and ability to examine themselves. Years and ability. So now the question is, what is the basis of the examination? How much examination do you need? And this becomes an issue in Presbyterian and OPC even, uh, circles is at what age should a child come to the table? Should we say they're baptized, therefore they can come? That's called pedo communion, and basically it's as soon as they can digest the bread and wine, they should be partaking. They should grow up partaking of this. Our confession says no. They need to be of years and ability. To examine themselves. And so the years is not, there's, there's not a hard, fast rule. Different reform communities have different traditions. Uh, if you've heard of confirmation class, uh, it's, it, it's a holdover, or, you know, the Roman Catholics started it, but uh, many reform, uh, the Lutherans do confirmation, Episcopalians do confirmation, many Presbyterians have a have a specific confirmation class, and typically that's around the time a kid is is 16 or so, 15, 16, 17 years old is when you're you're pressing the kids to or the young people at that point because theoretically they're on the verge of becoming adults and you're really pushing them. Others will say, "Hey, a three-year-old can examine themselves." Do you love Jesus? Yes, I love Jesus. What more do you need? Uh, and, and so 
the age at which a child comes is very subjective. It does not, we don't have any uh, age range given to us in the confession because we don't have an age range given to us in the scriptures. Uh, all we have in the scripture is, therefore, a man must examine himself. And, and so this issue of children and the mentally disabled uh, becomes kind of a gray area. Uh, and, and the same, you know, again, with the mentally disabled. Someone comes in here with profound uh, Down syndrome uh, or, or autism, you know, something that is just so profound that you really can't communicate with them and you really don't know what's going on inside their head. Uh, should we be allowing them to come to the table? The confession says no, we should not. Um, Luther, we said earlier, Luther had some clay feet. Well, one of those clay feet is Luther called the profoundly, uh, what's the politically correct? Anyway, the profoundly mentally disabled. <laughs> the profoundly mentally disabled, he referred to them as useless eaters. All they do is consume resources, and the most charitable thing to do for them is to smother them in their sleep. Not one of Luther's finest moments. <laughs> Not one of his finest moments. But regularly throughout the confession, or throughout church history, this issue of how do we deal with the mentally handicapped? What, what is the relationship of the church to those who are mentally handicapped. Can they be born again? Uh, if you confess, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, you shall be saved. So what do you do with someone who is just profoundly mentally disabled, unable to process the intellectual component of sin, of, of, of uh, salvation, of grace, of all of these things? Uh, what do you do? Uh, with the profoundly mentally disabled. This opens up a whole basket uh, full of questions, yeah, which we're beyond. Uh, but <laughs> just to give you a hint, it, it hits at the issue of what is the image of God? In what way are you and I created in God's image? Is it something to do with our intellect? We are higher than a dog, is it something to do with our ability to communicate? Uh, we are able to form language. We're, you know, that, that separates us from the animal kingdom. Well, if intellect and ability to communicate are the essence of what it means to be a human, then what do you do with the profoundly disabled? They're not truly human. Uh, and that's, that's the, the follow-on from that. And, and as much as you might want to say, wow, these are horrible cavemen that are living back in the Reformation era, those are questions that are being asked today. Those are questions that are being debated in universities today. Uh, should someone who is on life support and unable to communicate be taken off of life support against their will and against their family's will. Have they lost the right to live? 
because they are on life support. These issues are are very much in in the in the current thing. So 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 these these issues here that we're discussing get down beneath just the the coming to the table and get to issues of uh, the very image of God. Okay, so I'm five minutes over. Uh, I I just want to hit this one thing that I promise we're done with this chapter. I've been trying to end this chapter for three weeks now. Um, One thing the confession does not touch, if you will notice in chapter 29, it doesn't come anywhere near the question of frequency. Should we celebrate weekly? Should we celebrate monthly? Should we celebrate twice a year? Should we celebrate annually? The confession doesn't touch that. Uh, it doesn't come anywhere near. And, and that's intentional. It's not, you know, they, they, they had these debates. Uh, but the confession is just trying to say only what God's word says. So, so, um, in, in terms of church history, even the early church fathers were, were divided on this issue. Augustine says both a frequent celebration of the Lord's Supper and an infrequent celebration of the Lord's Supper, both are acceptable within the church. So, so back in Augustine's day, which would have been around 300, 350, uh, you already had these uh, two positions. Chrysostom was one of the early church fathers. He preferred uh, weekly communion. John Calvin picks up on that. Uh, and believed that weekly communion was uh, the correct practice. Geneva would not allow John Calvin to institute weekly communion. So when he went to Strasbourg, they gave him, they said, you can do what you want. Uh, come to Strasbourg, be our pastor, you can do anything you want. And he said, well, the first thing we're going to do is weekly communion. Uh, and so in Strasbourg, Calvin taught and practiced weekly communion. Later, Geneva called him back. They said, this town is falling to pieces without you. We need you back in Geneva. You need to start a seminary. You need to train all of these refugees that are coming uh, from all over Europe. And so when he went back to Geneva, he had to stop doing weekly communion. Uh, so, so Calvin was there. Uh, the Scottish Presbyterians uh, emphasize uh, annual communion. So if you're familiar with the RPCNA, the Reformed Presbyterian Church, North America, that is a distinctly Scottish covenanter uh, denomination. And I think their common practice is twice a year. Uh, it may be once a year, uh, but, but that definitely comes down from the Scottish tradition. And so they'll have seasons of preparation uh, the week before and uh, all of that sort of thing. But, uh, you know, I think as we've been preaching through Exodus, you've, you've kind of heard some of the reasons that I believe weekly is, is proper simply with the table of showbread. Uh, that is a communion table. The priest is eating on behalf of the people and with God. There's a feast. There's a communion that's going on there, and that takes place every Sabbath day uh, where they eat the bread that's been sitting there for seven days and replace it with the new bread. Uh, and, and so, uh, I think that, that's why our position is what it is. Um, I'm over by five minutes, uh, so I do want to stop there so that we can uh, go into our time of fellowship.
So let me close this with prayer. Father, we thank you that you've given to our feeble senses these tokens to remind us, to strengthen us. Uh, Lord, without something as basic as bread and wine, we would forget just how powerful and meaningful the work of Christ is. As we partake of the Lord's Supper, Father, help us to do so eagerly, uh, leaning in and, and understanding, examining, and seizing afresh. In Christ's name, amen. Um, so, I'm sorry, one last thing that I meant to bring up. Uh, I was going to have us read Matthew chapter 27, which is the institution of the Lord's Supper, and I was going to have us read it because... Christ institutes the Lord's institutes the Lord's Supper in Matthew and then tells the disciples, you are all going to fall away. He knows that they're going to fall into sin. The Lord's Supper is not for perfect Christians. Uh, the Lord's Supper is for broken Christians, broken Christians that Christ knows are going to walk out of that room and go and say, Three times, I have no idea who this man is. Uh, and, and so, it is for you and me. That's all. <laughs>